Since you've made it this far, you must be enjoying this book, and that makes me so happy. You deserve to sleep well every night, so be sure to check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed where you'll find exclusive bonus episodes. That way, you'll never run out of stories to put you to sleep. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. As always, I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad you've chosen to be here with me. Tonight, we'll be continuing with our sleepy narration of Pride and Prejudice. But before we get started, I want to give you a moment to unwind and settle in for the night. Find a comfortable position and take a nice big stretch. Focus on releasing any tension you may be holding in your body and let your muscles relax into your bed. Next, take some deep breaths and clear your mind. Start by taking a deep inhale, gathering any drifting thoughts from the day, and exhale fully, breathing them all away. Once more, inhale, and exhale. Allow your mind to focus on the sound of my voice while we continue our story this evening. Last time, Elizabeth thanked her friend Charlotte for taking the brunt of Mr. Collins's attentions during their evening at Lucas Lodge, especially after his failed proposal toward her. Charlotte, however, had other ideas and was successful in securing Mr. Collins's affections, who in turn offered Charlotte his hand in marriage. Elizabeth was taken quite by surprise by this announcement and worried that her friend was making a terrible mistake. But Charlotte assured her that the match was a prudent one and she knew what she was getting into. Another letter from Caroline was received, confirming that Bingley would not be returning to Netherfield any time soon, putting an end to Jane's hopes for an engagement. Elizabeth was convinced his sisters and Darcy had something to do with Bingley's change of heart and resolved to get to the bottom of it. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with the departure of Mr. Collins from Longbourn and a very disappointed Jane Bennett. Volume 2, Chapter 2 After a week spent in professions of love and schemes of felicity, Mr. Collins was called from his amiable Charlotte by the arrival of Saturday. The pain of separation, however, might be alleviated on his side by preparations for the reception of his bride as he had reason to hope that shortly after his next return into Hertfordshire, the day would be fixed that was to make him the happiest of men. He took leave of his relations at Longbourn with as much solemnity as before, wished his fair cousins health and happiness again, and promised their father another letter of thanks. On the following Monday, Mrs. Bennet had the pleasure of receiving her brother and his wife 
who came, as usual, to spend Christmas at Longbourn. Mr. Gardiner was a sensible, gentlemanlike man, greatly superior to his sister, as well by nature as education. The Netherfield ladies would have had difficulty in believing that a man who lived by trade and within view of his own warehouses could have been so well-bred and agreeable. Mrs. Gardner, who was several years younger than Mrs. Bennet and Mrs. Phillips, was an amiable, intelligent, elegant woman and a great favorite with all her long-born nieces. Between the two eldest and herself especially, there subsisted a very particular regard. They had frequently been staying with her in town. The first part of Mrs. Gardner's business on her arrival was to distribute her presents and describe the newest fashions. When this was done, she had a less active part to play. It became her turn to listen. Mrs. Bennet had many grievances to relate and much to complain of. They had all been very ill-used since she last saw her sister. Two of her girls had been on the point of marriage, and, after all, there was nothing in it. I do not blame Jane, Mrs. Bennet continued, for Jane would have got Mr. Bingley if she could. But Lizzie, oh sister, it is very hard to think that she might have been Mr. Collins's wife by this time, had it not been for her own perverseness. He had made her an offer in this very room, and she refused him. The consequence of it is that Lady Lucas will have a daughter married before I have, and that the Longbourn estate is just as much entailed as ever. The Lucases are very artful people indeed, sister. They are all for what they can get. I am sorry to say it of them, but so it is. It makes me very nervous and poorly to be thwarted so in my own family, and to have neighbours who think of themselves before anybody else. However, your coming just at this time is the greatest of comforts, and I am very glad to hear what you have to tell us of long sleeves. Mrs. Gardner, to whom the chief of this news had been given before, in the course of Jane and Elizabeth's correspondence with her, made her sister a slight answer, and in compassion to her nieces, turned the conversation. When alone with Elizabeth afterwards, she spoke more on the subject. It seems likely to have been a desirable match for Jane, said she. I am sorry it went off. But these things happen so often. A young man, such as you describe Mr. Bingley, so easily falls in love with a pretty girl for a few weeks. And when accident separates them, he so easily forgets her that these sorts of inconsistencies are very frequent. An excellent consolation in its way, said Elizabeth but it will not do for us. We do not suffer by accident. It does not often happen that the interference of friends will persuade a young man of independent fortune to think no more of a girl whom he was violently in love with only a few days before. Oh, but that expression of violently in love is so hackneyed, so doubtful so indefinite that it gives me very little idea, said Mrs. Gardiner. It is often applied to feelings which arrive from a half-hour's acquaintance 
as to a real, strong attachment. Pray, how violent was Mr. Bingley's love? I never saw a more promising inclination, said Elizabeth. He was growing quite inattentive to other people and wholly engrossed by her. Every time they met, it was more decided and remarkable. At his own ball, he offended two or three ladies by not asking them to dance, and I spoke to him twice myself without receiving an answer. Could there be finer symptoms? Is not general incivility the very essence of love? Oh yes, of that kind of love which I suppose him to have felt, said Mrs. Gardner. Poor Jane, I am sorry for her because, with her disposition, she may not get over it immediately. It had better have happened to you, Lizzie. You would have laughed yourself out of it sooner. But do you think she would be prevailed on to go back with us to London? Change of scene might be of service, and perhaps a little relief from home may be as useful as anything. Elizabeth was exceedingly pleased with this proposal, and felt persuaded of her sister's ready acquiescence. I hope added Mrs. Gardner, that no consideration with regard to this young man will influence her. We live in so different a part of town, all our connections are so different. And as well you know, we go out so little that it is very improbable that they should meet at all, unless he really comes to see her. And that is quite impossible for he is now in the custody of his friend, and Mr. Darcy would no more suffer him to call on Jane in such a part of London, Elizabeth replied. My dear aunt, how could you think of it? Mr. Darcy may perhaps have heard of such a place as Grace Church Street, but he would hardly think a month's ablution enough to cleanse him from its impurities were he wants to enter it. And depend upon it, Mr. Bingley never stirs without him. So much the better, said Mrs. Gardner. I hope they will not meet at all. But does not Jane correspond with the sister? She will not be able to help calling. She will drop the acquaintance entirely, replied Elizabeth. But in spite of the certainty in which Elizabeth affected to place this point, as well as the still more interesting one of Bingley's being withheld from seeing Jane, she felt a solicitude on the subject which convinced her, on examination, that she did not consider it entirely hopeless. It was possible, and sometimes she thought it probable, that his affection might be reanimated, were the influence of his friends successfully combated by the more natural influence of Jane's attractions. Miss Jane Bennet accepted her aunt's invitation with pleasure. The Bingleys were not otherwise in her thoughts at the time than as she hoped that, by Caroline's not living in the same house with her brother, she might occasionally spend the morning with her without any danger of seeing him. The gardeners stayed a week at Longbourn, and what with the Phillipses, the Lucases, and the officers, there was not a day without its engagement. Mrs. Bennet had so carefully provided for the entertainment of her brother and sister that they did not once sit down to a family dinner. When the engagement was for home, some of the officers always made part of it, of which officers Mr. Wickham was sure to be one. And on these occasions, Mrs. Gardner, 
rendered suspicious by Elizabeth's warm commendation of him, narrowly observed them both. Without supposing them, from what she saw, to be very seriously in love, their preference of each other was plain enough to make her a little uneasy, and she resolved to speak to Elizabeth on the subject before she left Hertfordshire and represent to her the imprudence of encouraging such an attachment. To Mrs. Gardiner, Wickham had one means of affording pleasure, unconnected with his general powers. About ten or a dozen years ago, before her marriage, she had spent a considerable time in that very part of Derbyshire to which he belonged. They had, therefore, many acquaintances in common, and, though Wickham had been little there since the death of Darcy's father, five years before, it was yet in his power to give her fresher intelligence of her former friends than she had been in the way of procuring. Mrs. Gardiner had seen Pemberley and known the late Mr. Darcy by character perfectly well. Here, consequently, was an inexhaustible subject of discourse. In comparing her recollection of Pemberley with the minute description which Wickham could give, and in bestowing her tribute of praise on the character of its late possessor, she was delighting both him and herself. On being made acquainted with the present Mr. Darcy's treatment of him, she tried to remember something of that gentleman's reputed disposition when quite a lad, which might agree with it, and was confident at last that she recollected having heard Mr. Fitzwilliam Darcy formerly spoken of as a very proud, ill-natured boy. Chapter 3 Mrs. Gardiner's caution to Elizabeth was punctually and kindly given on the first favourable opportunity of speaking to her alone. After honestly telling her what she thought, she thus went on. You are too sensible a girl, Lizzie, to fall in love merely because you are warned against it. And, therefore, I am not afraid of speaking openly, said Mrs. Gardiner. Seriously, I would have you be on your guard. Do not involve yourself or endeavour to involve Mr. Wickham in an affection which the want of fortune would make so very imprudent. I have nothing to say against him. He is a most interesting young man, and if he had the fortune he ought to have, I should think you could not do better. But as it is, you must not let your fancy run away with you. You have sense, and we all expect you to use it. Your father would depend on your resolution and good conduct, I am sure. You must not disappoint your father. My dear aunt, this is being serious indeed, said Elizabeth. Yes, and I hope to engage you to be serious likewise, said Mrs. Gardiner. Well then, you need not be under any alarm. Elizabeth said. I will take care of myself, and of Mr. Wickham too. He shall not be in love with me if I can prevent it. Elizabeth, you are not serious now, her aunt replied. I beg your pardon. I will try again, said Elizabeth. At present, I am not in love with Mr. Wickham. No. I certainly am not. But he is, beyond all comparison, the most agreeable man I ever saw. 
And if he becomes really attached to me, I believe it will be better that he should not. I see the imprudence of it. Ugh, that abominable Mr. Darcy. My father's opinion of me does me the greatest honor, and I should be miserable to forfeit it. My father, however, is partial to Mr. Wickham. In short, my dear aunt, I should be very sorry to be the means of making any of you unhappy. But since we see every day that where there is affection, young people are seldom withheld by immediate want of fortune from entering into engagements with one another, how can I promise to be wiser than so many of my fellow creatures if I am tempted? Or how am I even to know that it would be wisdom to resist? All that I can promise you, therefore, is not to be in a hurry. I will not be in a hurry to believe myself his first object. When I am in company with him, I will not be wishing. In short, I will do my best. Perhaps it will be well if you discourage his coming here so very often, said Mrs. Gardner. At least you should not remind your mother of inviting him. As I did the other day, said Elizabeth with a conscious smile. Very true. It will be wise in me to refrain from that. But do not imagine that he is always here so often. It is on your account that he has been so frequently invited this week. You know my mother's ideas as to the necessity of constant company for her friends. But really, and upon my honor, I will try to do what I think to be wisest. And now, I hope you are satisfied. Her aunt assured her that she was, and with Elizabeth having thanked her for the kindness of her hints, they parted. A wonderful instance of advice being given on such a point, without being resented. Mr. Collins returned into Hertfordshire soon after it had been left by the gardeners and Jane. But, as he took up his abode with the Lucases, his arrival was no great inconvenience to Mrs. Bennet. His marriage was now fast approaching, and she was, at length, so far resigned as to think it inevitable, and even repeatedly to say in an ill-natured tone that she wished they might be happy. Thursday was to be the wedding day, and on Wednesday, Miss Lucas paid her farewell visit. When she rose to take leave, Elizabeth, ashamed of her mother's ungracious and reluctant good wishes, and sincerely affected herself, accompanied her out of the room. As they went downstairs together, Charlotte said, I shall depend on hearing from you very often, Eliza. That you certainly shall, Elizabeth assured her. And I have another favor to ask, said Charlotte. Will you come and see me? We shall often meet, I hope, in Hertfordshire, Elizabeth replied. I am not likely to leave Kent for some time, said Charlotte. Promise me, therefore, to come to Hunsford. Elizabeth could not refuse, though she foresaw little pleasure in the visit. My father and Maria are to come to me in March, added Charlotte, and I hope you will consent to be of the party. Indeed, Eliza, you will be as welcome to me as either of them. The wedding took place. The bride and bridegroom set off for Kent from the church door, and everybody had as much to say or hear on the subject as usual. Elizabeth soon heard from her friend, and their correspondence was as regular and frequent as it had ever been. But that it should be equally unreserved was impossible. 
Elizabeth could never address her without feeling that all the comfort of intimacy was over. And, though determined not to slacken as a correspondent, it was for the sake of what had been, rather than what was. Charlotte's first letters were received with a good deal of eagerness. There could not be but curiosity to know how she would speak of her new home, how she would like Lady Catherine, and how happy she would dare pronounce herself to be. Though, when the letters were read, Elizabeth felt that Charlotte expressed herself on every point exactly as she might have foreseen. She wrote cheerfully, seemed surrounded with comforts, and mentioned nothing which she could not praise. The house, furniture, neighborhood, and roads were all to her taste, and Lady Catherine's behavior was most friendly and obliging. It was Mr. Collins's picture of Hunsford and Rosings rationally softened, and Elizabeth perceived that she must wait for her own visit there to know the rest. Jane had already written a few lines to her sister to announce their safe arrival in London, and when she wrote again, Elizabeth hoped it would be in her power to say something of the Bingleys. Her impatience for this second letter was as well rewarded as impatience generally is. Jane had been in town a week without either seeing or hearing from Caroline. She accounted for it, however, by supposing that her last letter to her friend from Longbourn had, by some accident, been lost. My aunt, she continued, is going tomorrow to that part of the town and I shall take the opportunity of calling in Grosvenor Street. She wrote again when the visit was paid, and she had seen Miss Bingley. I did not think Caroline in spirits, were her words, but she was very glad to see me and reproached me for giving her no notice of my coming to London. I was right, therefore. My last letter had never reached her. I inquired after her brother, of course. He was well, but so much engaged with Mr. Darcy that they scarcely ever saw him. I found that Miss Darcy was expected to dinner. I wish I could see her. My visit was not long, as Caroline and Mrs. Hurst were going out. I dare say I shall soon see them here. Elizabeth shook her head over this letter. It convinced her that accident only could discover to Mr. Bingley her sister's being in town. Four weeks passed, and Jane saw nothing of him. She endeavoured to persuade herself that she did not regret it, but she could no longer be blind to Miss Bingley's inattention. After waiting at home every morning for a fortnight and inventing every evening a fresh excuse for her, the visitor did at last appear. But the shortness of her stay, and yet more, the alteration of her manner, would allow Jane to deceive herself no longer. The letter which Jane wrote on this occasion to her sister proved what she felt. My dearest Lizzie will, I am sure, be incapable of triumphing in her better judgment at my expense when I confess myself to having been entirely deceived in Miss Bingley's regard for me. But, my dear sister, though the event has proved you right, do not think me obstinate if I still assert that considering what her behavior was, my confidence was as natural as your suspicion. 
I do not at all comprehend her reason for wishing to be intimate with me. But if the same circumstances were to happen again, I am sure I should be deceived again. Caroline did not return my visit till yesterday, and not a note, not a line did I receive in the meantime. When she did come, it was very evident that she had no pleasure in it. She made a slight, formal apology for not calling before, said not a word of wishing to see me again, and was, in every respect, so altered a creature that when she went away, I was perfectly resolved to continue the acquaintance no longer. I pity her, though I cannot help blaming her. She was very wrong in singling me out as she did. I can safely say that every advance to intimacy began on her side, but I pity her because she must feel that she has been acting wrong and because I am very sure that anxiety for her brother is the cause of it. I need not explain myself further, and though we know this anxiety to be quite needless, if she feels it, it will easily account for her behavior to me. And so deservedly dear as he is to his sister, whatever anxiety she may feel on his behalf is natural and amiable. I cannot but wonder, however, at her having any such fears now, because if he had at all cared about me, we must have met long, long ago. He knows of my being in town, I am certain, from something she said herself, and yet it should seem, by her manner of talking, as if she wanted to persuade herself that he is really partial to Miss Darcy. I cannot understand it. If I were not afraid of judging harshly, I should be almost tempted to say that there is a strong appearance of duplicity in all this. But I will endeavor to banish every painful thought and think only of what will make me happy, your affection and the invariable kindness of my dear uncle and aunt. Let me hear from you very soon. Miss Bingley said something of his never returning to Netherfield again, of giving up the house, but not with any certainty. We had better not mention it. I am extremely glad that you have had such pleasant accounts from our friends at Hunsford. Pray, go see them with Sir William and Maria. I'm sure you will be very comfortable there. Yours, Jane. This letter gave Elizabeth some pain, but her spirits returned as she considered that Jane would no longer be duped, by the sister at least. All expectation from the brother was now absolutely over. She would not even wish for any renewal of his attentions. His character sunk on every review of it, and as a punishment for him, as well as a possible advantage to Jane, she seriously hoped he might really soon marry Mr. Darcy's sister, as by Wickham's account, she would make him abundantly regret what he had thrown away. Mrs. Gardner, about this time, reminded Elizabeth of her promise concerning that gentleman, and required information and Elizabeth had such to send as might rather give more contentment to her aunt than to herself. His apparent partiality had subsided, his attentions were over, and he was the admirer of someone else. Elizabeth was watchful enough to see it all, but she could see it and write of it without material pain. Her heart had been but slightly touched, and her vanity was satisfied with believing that she would have been his only choice had fortune permitted it. The sudden acquisition of £10,000 was the most remarkable charm 
of the young lady to whom he was now rendering himself agreeable. But Elizabeth, less clear-sighted perhaps in this case than in Charlotte's, did not quarrel him for his wish of independence. Nothing, on the contrary, could be more natural. And while able to suppose that it cost him a few struggles to relinquish her, she was ready to allow it a wise and desirable measure for both, and could very sincerely wish him happy. All this was acknowledged to Mrs. Gardiner, and after relating the circumstances, she thus went on. I am now convinced, my dear aunt, that I have never been much in love, for had I really experienced that pure, elevating passion, I should, at present, detest his very name and wish him all manner of evil. But my feelings are not only cordial towards him, they are even impartial towards Miss King. I cannot find out that I hate her at all, or that I am in the least unwilling to think her a very good sort of girl. There can be no love in all this. My watchfulness has been effectual, and though I should certainly be a more interesting object to all my acquaintances were I distractedly in love with him, I cannot say that I regret my comparative insignificance. Importance may sometimes be purchased too dearly. Kitty and Lydia take his defection much more to heart than I do. They are young in the ways of the world, and not yet open to the mortifying conviction that handsome young men must have something to live on, as well as the plain. Chapter 4 With no greater events than these in the Longbourn family, and otherwise diversified by little beyond the walks to Meryton, sometimes dirty and sometimes cold, did January and February pass away. March was to take Elizabeth to Hunsford. She had not at first thought very seriously of going there, but Charlotte, she soon found, was depending on the plan and she gradually learned to consider it herself with greater pleasure as well as greater certainty. Absence had increased her desire of seeing Charlotte again and weakened her disgust of Mr. Collins. There was novelty in the scheme and as, with such a mother and such uncompanionable sisters, home could not be faultless. A little change was not unwelcome for its own sake. The journey would, moreover, give her a peep at Jane. And, in short, as the time grew near, she would have been very sorry for any delay. Everything, however, went on smoothly and was finally settled according to Charlotte's first sketch. She was to accompany Sir William and his second daughter. The improvement of spending a night in London was added in time, and the plan became perfect as any plan could be. The only pain was in leaving her father, who would certainly miss her, and who, when it came to the point, so little liked her going that he told her to write to him and almost promised to answer her letter. The farewell between herself and Mr. Wickham was perfectly friendly, on his side even more. His present pursuit could not make him forget that Elizabeth had been the first to excite and to deserve his attention, the first to listen and to pity and the first to be admired. And in his manner of bidding her adieu, he wished her every enjoyment, reminded her of what she was to expect in Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and trusted their opinion of the lady, their opinion of everybody, 
would always coincide. There was a solicitude, an interest which she felt must ever attach her to him with the most sincere regard. And she parted from him, convinced that whether married or single, he must always be her model of the amiable and pleasing. Her fellow travelers the next day were not of a kind to make her think him less agreeable. Sir William Lucas and his daughter Mariah, a good-humored girl but as empty-headed as himself, had nothing to say that could be worth hearing and were listened to with about as much delight as the rattle of the carriage. Elizabeth loved absurdities, but she had known Sir William's too long. He could tell her nothing new of the wonders of his presentation and knighthood, and his civilities were worn out like his information. It was a journey of only 24 miles, and they began it so early as to be in Gracechurch Street by noon. As they drove to Mr. Gardiner's door, Jane was at a drawing room window, watching their arrival. When they entered the passage, she was there to welcome them, and Elizabeth, looking earnestly in her face, was pleased to see it healthful and lovely as ever. On the stairs were a troop of little boys and girls whose eagerness for their cousin's appearance would not allow them to wait in the drawing room, and whose shyness, as they had not seen her for a twelve-month, prevented their coming lower. All was joy and kindness. The day passed most pleasantly away, the morning in bustle and shopping, and the evening at one of the theatres. Elizabeth then contrived to sit by her aunt. Their first subject was her sister, and she was more grieved than astonished to hear, in reply to her minute inquiries, that though Jane always struggled to support her spirits, there were periods of dejection. It was reasonable, however, to hope that they would not continue long. Mrs. Gardiner gave her the particulars also of Miss Bingley's visit in Gracechurch Street, and repeated conversations occurring at different times between Jane and herself, which proved that the former had, from her heart, given up the acquaintance. Mrs. Gardiner then rallied her niece on Wickham's desertion and complimented her on bearing it so well. But my dear Elizabeth, she added, what sort of girl is Miss King? I should be sorry to think our friend mercenary. Pray, my dear aunt, what is the difference in matrimonial affairs between the mercenary and the prudent motive? said Elizabeth. Where does discretion end and avarice begin? Last Christmas, you were afraid of his marrying me because it would be imprudent, and now, because he is trying to get a girl with only ten thousand pounds, you want to find out that he is mercenary. If you will only tell me what sort of girl Miss King is, I shall know what to think, said her aunt. She's a very good kind of girl, I believe, said Elizabeth. I know no harm of her. But he paid her not the smallest attention till her grandfather's death made her mistress of this fortune, Mrs. Gardiner replied. No, why should he, said Elizabeth. If it was not allowable for him to gain my affections because I had no money, what occasion could there be for making love to a girl whom he did not care about and who was equally poor? But there seems indelicacy in directing his attentions towards her so soon after this event, Mrs. Gardiner said. A man in distressed circumstances 
has not time for all those elegant decorums which other people may observe, said Elizabeth. If she does not object to it, why should we? Her not objecting does not justify him, said her aunt. It only shows her being deficient in something herself, either sense or feeling. Well, cried Elizabeth, have it as you choose. He shall be mercenary and she shall be foolish. No, Lizzie, that is what I do not choose, said Mrs. Gardiner. I should be sorry, you know, to think ill of a young man who has lived so long in Derbyshire. Oh, if that is all, I have a very poor opinion of young men who live in Derbyshire, and their intimate friends who live in Hertfordshire are not much better, said Elizabeth. I'm sick of all of them. Thank heaven I'm going tomorrow where I shall find a man who has not one agreeable quality, who has neither manner nor sense to recommend him. Stupid men are the only ones worth knowing after all. Take care, Lizzie, said Mrs. Gardiner. That speech savors strongly of disappointment. Before they were separated by the conclusion of the play, she had the unexpected happiness of an invitation to accompany her uncle and aunt in a tour of pleasure which they proposed taking in the summer. We have not quite determined how far it shall carry us, said Mrs. Gardiner, but perhaps to the lakes? No scheme could have been more agreeable to Elizabeth, and her acceptance of the invitation was most ready and grateful. My dear, dear aunt, she rapturously cried. What delight, what felicity. You give me fresh life and vigor. Adieu to disappointment and spleen. What a man to rocks and mountains. Oh, what hours of transport we shall spend. And when we do return, it shall not be like other travelers, without being able to give one accurate idea of anything. We will know where we have gone. We will recollect what we have seen. Lakes, mountains and rivers shall not be jumbled together in our imaginations. Nor when we attempt to describe any particular scene will we begin quarreling about its relative situation. Let our first effusions be less insupportable than those of the generality of travelers. <laughs>